might sound a bit different today. I'm not at home. I'm on holiday. We've taken a little break from Melbourne to go where it's warm. Where we are staying, I get to stare at the ocean all day. From when I wake up to when I go to sleep, I just get to look at it. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. It is just... We're staying in that part of Australia that I think people think of when they imagine uh, what this country looks like, the kind of the postcard of Australia. So, so lucky, so lucky. And I keep thinking about those lines from The Open by Lucy Van, where she talks about how the ocean offers you this kind of privacy. I totally got what she meant when I read that line, but now I feel like I understand it on a slightly deeper level. Not to go straight back to my mental health once again in the intro, but I brought a lot of bullshit up here with me. <laughs> and um, when you look at the ocean, it's all okay. The ocean is so vast, it can hold every single part of it such a gift i know what you're thinking alice why are you making a podcast when you're meant to be on holiday yes i know i know but what i have learned about myself is that i do so much better on holiday when i have a project to occupy my brain i've got the border collie brain i really if you give me like a banana lounge and a cocktail uh I'm kind of like five minutes from meltdown. Like I can't, I can't do that. I need, I need to be making things. I need to be doing things. So today I really want to do some follow-up on the last couple of episodes. A few things have come up. I've had a few really beautiful notes from people. I hardly ever get listener feedback. It's really weird. I've been doing this show for six years and I feel like I still don't have a clear sense of who you are. I don't really know who's out there listening. Most of the time I think when I'm recording, I think about sort of an amalgam of like the two to three people that I know are listening because they text me after they listen to an episode, which I love. But then sometimes I go to a reading or a launch and I'll speak to someone who I barely know and they'll say, oh, I was listening to your episode on blah, blah, blah. And I go into this state of like, oh, shit, really? Are you, you're listening? Okay, um, now I have to recalibrate everything. <laughs> like, it's just so strange. It always, it kind of rattles me. And then in my darker moments, I'm like, is everybody listening? Like, is this a hate listen? <laughs> is, that, is that what's happening? Okay, whatever, that's fine. Um, all of which just to say, I love hearing from you. And even though I rage quit off Twitter, you can still reach me anytime. Email me at poetrysayspod at gmail.com. I know it's not as fun as using Twitter. I know that email is a bit of a drag, but yes, see above mental health. This week, I got a beautiful couple of emails from listener Anna. Listener Anna is from Canada. 
she wrote to me a couple of months back I think and this time she got in touch because um, she wanted to respond to a bunch of things but particularly it seems like she was interested in the midwinter day episode I was so happy that that episode resonated with someone um, who is herself it sounds like a, a mother and who is it it sounds like doing a lot of the domestic work that Bernadette Mayer tracks in that very beautiful very strange very challenging book um, and yeah Anna said some really amazing things including that she thought that that episode was kind of an example of the kind of work that you can really only do when you're not trying to fit in with what everyone else on the top 10 podcast lists is doing and she said that it got her thinking about um, the links between what she calls the kinds of constant maintenance and caregiving work required in the domestic realm and the similar slow cyclical sustaining processes in nature she says i'm thinking of the similarity in how they are both avoided unvalued resented and incomprehensible to us when we are living in a state of separation from them and i was joking to her in reply that yes every time i clean the bathroom i decide this is the last time i'll ever have to clean the bathroom but it's a cyclical process <laughs> it's constant it uh it has to happen over and over and over again these things are very easy to understand when you get to sit and look at the ocean and look at the waves and think about the tides and it's so easy to forget all that stuff when you're back at your desk when I'm back at my desk at the moment I am in a poultry workshop working with my teacher Josh again he's doing a free verse workshop and of course I'm putting all this pressure on myself like this is your this is your time to shine Alice you got to show him <laughs> how good how good your palms can be and yeah it's it's making it a little bit hard to write anything decent strangely enough because I'm approaching it in that way of like start at the start and write until you're finished and then you're done and you submit and capitalism yay there's a lot more to Anna's email. Um, she gave me a wonderful list of Canadian poets, which I really, really am looking forward to following up on because it's crazy. I know all this stuff about the Americans and I know nothing about Canada. Um, even though Canada and Australia, we have these similarly extremely difficult histories of colonization. Um, and it sounds like we're having similar movements within our poetry communities at the moment to kind of highlight voices that have been just shut out for years and years and years so i've got plenty of reading to do there and i'm excited to do it i want to veer off from anna's email just for a minute because i want to talk also about a movie that matthew recommended to me in response to my rant about how all movies about poets position us as dysfunctional, sad, hopeless cases and how poetry is the source of misery in our lives. I was talking about the film Set Fire to the Stars about Dylan Thomas and the incredibly flawed, although apparently still totally critically acclaimed, 
Terence Davies movie Benediction about Siegfried Sassoon. So Matthew got in touch and said, have you seen Before Night Falls, which is a movie from 2000. It was directed by Julian Schnabel and it stars Javier Bardem. It's about the life and exile of a Cuban author, Rinaldo Arenas. He was a poet, a novelist, a playwright. This movie is so goddamn beautiful from the opening shot. Holy shit. The colors, the way it's shot and Javier Bardem, my God, he is in almost every frame and he just shines. When you see the movie poster, you will see Johnny Depp in the middle of the photo there. Don't worry. He's in the movie for like five minutes he sucks he's really bad in it and yeah he's completely outshone and forgettable so don't don't let that turn you off it's extremely sexy and yeah it's got this um i really love a movie that can evoke a sense of temperature everyone is all it's always like stifling hot in this film most of the time people are wearing either pants or a shirt but they're rarely wearing both at the same time in terms of poetry, there are a couple of scenes that really stood out to me. At the beginning, a very young Ronaldo has carved some words into the trunk of a tree. He's about maybe 10 or 11 at this point. And his teacher notices that he's been doing this carving and comes to his home to tell his grandfather and what she says to the grandfather and to the assembled family is, Ronaldo has a special gift. He has the sensitivity for poetry. And far from being excited, his grandfather looks completely horrified. And he stands up, he takes an axe, he walks out to the tree where Ronaldo has done this carving and he just hacks away at it, he chops it down. This is, this is all during the setup. This is maybe in the first 10, 15 minutes of the film. I think there are two ways to interpret this scene. One is that the grandfather knows or believes that this sensitivity that the teacher is talking about is gonna lead to a life that he can't understand. The life of a writer is gonna take Ronaldo away from the house, from the family, from the farm and he's essentially going to disappear. The other interpretation, which is, I think is more what the film wants, is um, by this point in the film, we as viewers, we already know that Ronaldo is attracted to men. And so I think that we can also read a sensitivity for poetry in this particular case as another way to express Ronaldo's sexuality. But on the, on the face of it, it's a bad start for the position of poet in the film. And so I had kind of a bad feeling that this was going to be another movie where poetry ruins lives. But throughout the whole movie, writing is constantly a source of joy. It's just as pleasurable as sex it's just as important and it actually saves Ronaldo when he becomes a political prisoner 
he writes a whole novel while he's in prison to escape psychologically the hell that he is in and the fact that he's a writer also makes him popular amongst the other prisoners and he becomes quite important in the prison population. There's another scene before he gets imprisoned when one of Ronaldo's fellow poets is questioned about a gathering he's had at his house. At this point, 1960s Cuba, um, I understand very little about the context of this film, but it seems that gatherings are not really allowed at this point. This sort of inquisition board group of people say gatherings of over three people are banned and they're asking this poet, what were you doing? And he says, oh, we were having a, a poetry reading. And they say, well, was it really just a poetry reading? Or was this an opportunity for you to recite counter-revolutionary propaganda? And then there's this really interesting moment where the poet is asked by this panel, is poetry ever propaganda? And the poet replies, I suppose it could be. You know, he's trying to say the right thing. He's, they're incredibly high stakes for how he answers these questions. I suppose it could be propaganda. This all brings me back to Anna's email. She also talked a little bit about the article that I mentioned when I interviewed Nick Powell. I felt like the response to my interview with Nick was mixed. <laughs> I'll say that. I think, um, look, I have loved it when I have spoken to poets whose work doesn't connect with everyone and then people get to meet that poet as a human and it, it, it softens them towards their work. Um, I hope that that's what happened in some cases with that interview. I think, um, you know, work like that is it's not for everybody. I think that's fine. I think that's really fine. I think the exciting thing for me is that it's being talked about and debated. When I was speaking with Nick, we were talking about this article in The Guardian written by the poet Ben Okri, which was titled, Artists Must Confront the Climate Crisis. Ben Okri writes, I must write now as if these are the last things I will write that any of us will write. If you knew you were at the last days of the human story, what would you write? How would you write? What would your aesthetics be? Would you use more words than necessary? What form would poetry truly take? I think Anna put her case extremely well. She said, Ben's manifesto goes against so much of what art is and does, and it sounds perilously like the worst kind of political control of public expression. I don't think this is his intention. In fact, he stresses in most of his work that I've read that the best action comes out of love, especially love for the earth. But his insistence on fear being a useful tool to affect real change doesn't sit well with me. Doesn't sit well with me either, Anna. <laughs> I found that whole thing totally alienating and annoying and stressful. But I was thinking about her comments and I was thinking about this question that comes up in the film, can poetry ever be propaganda? 
I mean, do we think that poetry that makes a clear, direct case for action on climate change, for example, is that propaganda? Probably not, right? Propaganda is not a word that you would usually associate with poetry at all, I don't think. But hold that thought. So I have a fairly, it's better than it was, but yeah, I still have a fairly healthy level of um, fear when it comes to flying. Uh, and one of the ways that I try to distract myself from the horrifying sense of being trapped in a metal tube hurtling through the air controlled by someone else is to buy a magazine at the airport. And when we were at the airport this time, I found myself a Vanity Fair. Love a Vanity Fair for the plane. And I was really keen to get this issue because it had on the cover an article, Peter Thiel's Red Pill Army. This article is totally disturbing for a whole range of reasons. Essentially, it's a description of some of the major and also more minor players in what the writer, a guy called James Pogue, calls the new right. This is how he describes it. This new right is heavily populated by people with graduate degrees, so there's a lot of debate about who is in it and whether or not it even exists. At one end are the natcons, post-liberals, and traditionalist figures who envision a conservatism reinvigorated by an embrace of localist values, religious identity, and an active role for the state in promoting everything from marriage to environmental conservation. But there's also a highly online set of Substack writers, podcasters, and anonymous Twitter posters, our true intellectual elite, as one podcaster describes them. All through this article, the word podcaster is used as if it describes a class of people, and it disturbs the fuck out of me. <laughs> what the hell? Pod Podcasting's not a job? Oh my god, calm down. People who make podcasts is about as far as you want to take it, I think. That's broadly how this new right idea is, is summarized, but it's, it's exceptionally complicated. It's like 5,000 words here that I'm only barely managing to pass. Um, but one of the people at the center of this scene, if we can call it a scene, movement, mm, that sounds like it's going too far, scene, is incredibly a poet. This is a guy called Curtis Yarvin. Even as I say his name, <laughs> I, am, I am hoping that uh, I'm not about to be doxxed by a host of terrifying new right podcasters. I mean, guys, come on. It's a poetry podcast, just, it's okay. So the article outlines this guy, Curtis Yarvin, uh, who used to blog under a pseudonym and used to write some truly horrifying racist and and just just hateful shit. Um, apparently now he has tempered himself in middle age, the writer says. His vibe now is, um, here's a quote from him, the fundamental premise of liberalism is that there is this inexorable march toward progress I disagree with that premise. My job is to wake people up from the Truman Show. 
I really don't want to try to summarize this way of thinking because I, I can't I think it's a little bit too confused for me to even attempt that but I think the kind of like anodyne like safe version is we just want to be able to live the way we want to live and raise our families and worship and go to church without people telling us how we should be we don't want our language policed we don't want um we want the state to stay out of it we actually want to dismantle the state but that seems to be hiding a whole host of really disgusting very racist very homophobic very transphobic thinking and essentially to me it just sounds like people being uncomfortable that they have to think about people that are slightly different in some way but but you know what would i know i'm just a podcaster a podcaster this new class of people the most remarkable thing about this guy to me even though he holds some views that as i say i can barely understand is that he writes poetry and this is all through this article in vanity fair you know it's talking about who he is and what he does and how he's a bit of a a bit of a star on the new york literary scene so i thought i've got to read some of this guy's stuff i have to know maybe he's fucking incredible let's find out i ended up on a website called graymirror.substack.com already I feel as if I might be on some kind of list and <laughs> I found these two poems one is called Christmas poem and one is called the desert I want to look at them both I want to spend a little bit of time with each of them the first one is pretty simply on the face of it it's a joke poem Christmas poem published December 26 2021 it's written very directly to his audience here on Substack, to his fans. And I'm going to read just the second half of it. It's in couplets. I will try to affect the kind of poetry voice that might give you a sense of the line breaks. Thank you so much for supporting me in this year. To drop a cliche, it has meant more than you can know. Please stay safe from the latest lab leak in this comic hellscape. I should have realized in the 90s that the future would be a graphic novel. Please submit your awful poetry to the passage prize. I will judge with droll severity, like Radamanthus on nitrous. In the new year, I charge you with focus and seriousness levity and nihilism, optimism and utter despair, strategy and sincerity. And think too of the animals, like the quail outside, shivering in the silver brush. The passage prize was uh, a prize that they, they ran to bring together um, short stories, poetry, essays, original artwork, they had 2,000 submissions and it was to create a book that 
is, quote, a monument to the creative talent of the online dissident right and beyond. It's 300 pages long and it costs $400. So you can grab yourself a copy of that if you would like. 66 likes and 17 comments for Christmas poem. Contrived Android says, I've never enjoyed poetry, but I always read your poems. First time I've been so deeply touched by a poem. Thank you for sharing them with us and Merry Christmas to you and your family. I mean, the thing about this poem is it's a, it's on one level completely a joke poem. Why would you use poetry to communicate information about uh, a literary prize? It just strikes me as so odd. It feels as if Curtis Yavin has decided to use being a poet as some kind of pose, like it's a pose of sensitivity, poet as snowflake, poet as somebody who might cry liberal tears or something like that. And so I was reading this and I was like, well, fuck this guy. That's just irritating. And also why does poetry have this strange cool cachet now where right-wingers on Substack are, are using it to communicate messages to their followers. It's creepy is what it is. Then I had a look at this poem called The Desert. This was written in October 2021 and as I found out in the Vanity Fair article earlier that year Curtis Yarvin's wife had died. I think this poem is a lot about her. It starts like this. I dream that I wake up dreaming in a world of sand. You are gone. Every grain of us is free. I am free. The very kids are getting free. Plato talked about this. This desert has no walls, for there is no stone. For stone is frozen sand, for stone is sand in chains. Our silent bombs falling in appalling, spalling flash. Loose the stone city from its lock break the building from its block, spring red sand from its red brick. Every grain of us is free. I am free. One of the things that the writer of the Vanity Fair article mentioned is that in order to, I guess, speak freely, members of the new right will tend to use a lot of allusions and coded language so that they don't get ostracized when they're speaking either online or in public. So I look at a poem like this and on the one hand I think he's talking about somebody who is gone but then he starts talking about freedom, he starts talking about walls, he talks about loosing the stone city from its lock, breaking the building from its block, he keeps referring to red sand, red brick. I feel as if there's, there's a lot of signalling here that's completely lost on me. Further on in the poem he gets this kind of, I don't know, a, a revolutionary tone? I'm not really sure. Talk not to me of men, but grains. Every grain of us is free. I am free from you. You are dry cremains. I have no idea what cremains is. Throw a snowball, throw a cloud. I dream that I wake up dreaming in a world of mud. You are here or someone like you or even not. Everything is stuck to itself again. The brown world is turning green. To celebrate the second marriage of steel and verse, palace and Mars, 
of philosophy and the watered edge. Then once again, I wake asleep. I have absolutely no idea how to pass any of that. Uh, but there's something about it that it, that sounds deeply romantic to me. I dream that I wake up dreaming in a world of mud. You are here or someone like you. Once again, I wake asleep. This guy actually wants to write poetry. And this is, this is not convenient for a guy who, you know, this is the guy who might have actually invented our current usage of the word red-pilled. And this is a guy who is calling not for a president for the US anymore, but for more of a national CEO. This guy wants to write poetry. And the thing about poets is, if you're a poet and you're listening to this, you, you understand what I mean when I say, as poets, we often hate ourselves for wanting to be poets. That poetic impulse comes with a side of shame and we all have our own internal horrified grandfather picking up an axe, heading out to the tree and chopping it down. But Curtis Yarvin is a poet. He wants to affect people with his words. He's actually been working at this for years. There's a recording of him reading in Berkeley in 1997. He's got this adorable kind of young David Foster Wallace vibes, got the round glasses and the long hair. It's really inconvenient, but Curtis Yarvin has the sensitivity of a poet and possibly the self-hatred of a poet. I've got, a, I've got a poem for you, Curtis, that I think might help. You probably know the poet William Carlos Williams. You might even know this poem. It's called Dance Russe. I think about this often when I'm thinking about how ridiculous and strange the life of a poet is. If I, when my wife is sleeping, and the baby and Kathleen are sleeping, and the sun is a flame white disc in silken mists above shining trees, if I in my north room dance naked grotesquely before my mirror, waving my shirt round my head and singing softly to myself, I am lonely, lonely, I was born to be lonely. I am best so. If I admire my arms, my face, my shoulders, flanks, buttocks against the yellow drawn shades, who shall say I am not the happy genius of my household? The point I'm trying to make is, Curtis, if you have the sensitivity of a poet, try not to make that a problem for the rest of the world. Come write some poetry. You don't have to conquer the world. You can just be a poet. <laughs>